It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today we have a special guest, Katie Dahl, on the podcast, and we are going to dive into all manner of things around well, actually, I don't know what we're going to dive into. For any first-time listeners, we jump into this with a very light sketch of where we want to go with each episode. I've had the pleasure of being a guest on Katie's incredible podcast called Crying Behind Sunglasses. And I want to jump in, Katie, just jump into the deep end right away. You are, I suppose, what I like to call like a multi-hyphenate artist in the world. You have this great background where you went to NYU. You've been acting, doing voiceover, doing direction. You've been a staple in the L.A. comedy scene for many, many years. And we've talked a lot recently on the episode about the intersection of entertainment, artistry, celebrity and mental health and, and how all those things sort of interplay. And I think it's interesting to be in the entertainment world and also have struggles and challenges with mental health. So I want to kick it off by asking you, does it seem like maybe like the worst thing in the world to choose a profession. <laughs> and I say this because we're also involved in entertainment. Choose a profession where you are faced with near constant rejection and a lot of doors being shut in your face. And over the course of your career, I'm sure you have incredible stories about a whole lot of different projects that never came to fruition. But my question is, as an artist, how much more difficult do you think it is choosing this profession? Maybe it shows you. I don't know. We're going to find out today. When dealing with your mental health, like it seems crazy, doesn't it, on one level to be like, I'm going to choose a profession where there's constant rejection, and yet I have mental health issues. I mean, I was thinking about that before the podcast. I mean, how has that landed for you over the course of your career, and and how difficult has that been for you as an artist o o over the years? Well, first off, hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for that lovely intro. I really appreciate it. And it was so nice to have you on my show as well. So nice to do this little pod swap. To answer your question about mental health, being in the entertainment industry, it's kind of a broad one, but something that I do think about often where it's like, yeah, I have anxiety. I have panic attacks. I'm sure that being in a less stressful line of work would probably be better, theoretically. However, I have tried before to work normal office jobs, and it doesn't really, like, it doesn't make anything better <laughs> for me, you know? So it's something that I just learned how to manage because it's kind of like, yes, you get a stability and you get a paycheck, but at the same time, my anxiety is alleviated by being able to be creative and being able to perform. That's like one of the biggest outlets for me. And if I don't have that outlet, then it's much more difficult to manage. So you just kind of have to pick your battles. It's like, okay, do I want to feel bad because I'm not pursuing my dream? Or do I want to just deal with the bullshit that might come along with that dream? <laughs> and develop some resilience and some toughness. How do you do that? Because I feel like we 
we hear those words a lot, right? Is to have a thick skin, build up your resilience, get comfortable with rejection, get comfortable with no. How do you build that muscle? And over the years, how did you do that? Like, as far as where you're at right now in your artistic career versus when you started, how did you develop those those muscles, proverbially speaking, they're not actual muscles. There's no resilience. Maybe there is. Maybe we haven't discovered it. I feel like we've discovered all the muscles in the human body. But anyway, it, it's a metaphor. How did you build those muscles, Katie? Because we hear about resilience all the time. But for you, how do you do that? And how do you continue to do that? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, the resilience muscle, I'll tell you right now, it is located in your brain, I think. <laughs> just just a wild guess, Jason. <laughs> He's laughing and he muted himself. It's really too bad. I promise I'm funny, guys. So yeah, that's what I think though. And also it just comes with time. It comes with experience. It comes with going through whatever it is that you think is the worst thing that could happen to you and coming out the other side and realizing that didn't kill you. So I don't think it's something that can be taught in a traditional way because it's something that you have to live through. You have to, I mean, you can teach tools, I think, so that you say, okay, next time this thing happens, next thing, next time I have an audition that I'm really excited about and I don't book it because for anybody who is not an actor out there, just so you know, a lot of actors don't book most of the auditions they go on. If they did, then it would be a lot easier, right? So you say to yourself, okay, next time I go on an audition and I don't get it. What am I going to do? How am I going to set myself up for success? Am I going to do something really awesome right after I film that audition so that I can just treat myself nicely and take my mind off of it? Or am I going to journal about it? Am I going to tell a friend about it? Because I want to feel a little excitement. Or am I going to not tell my friend about it? Because I don't want them to check in on me and ask if I booked it. Like there are a lot of different things that you can do that are techniques specifically around this scenario. But as far as the resilience factor for me, it's not just these techniques. It's also just having a lived experience of going through these things over and over and over again and knowing whatever is meant for me is for me, no one can take that away. And just having a peace with that. I think that's so important that you shared these tips because for anyone who's listening, who is an, an actor or performer, I feel like it's really easy to ruminate after an audition, right? And play it over and over again in our head. What could I have done differently? Did I flub that line? Did I really bring the right spirit of the character? I, I, for me, at least, Whitney knows this because she was very much kind of involved tangentially, but I, I had an audition recently, Katie, for a, an Apple Plus TV show. And I put, you know, I put everything I had into it, right? You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you put everything into something, you know, that in your heart, right? It's, it's an individual thing. You're like, I really put everything I had into it. And then I remember clicking that button of like sending, you know, sending the self tape, like, okay, don't know what's going to happen. And then, you know, found out that, I did really well and and almost got the part, but I wasn't the right ethnicity, right? So in, tho in those cases, to even get that feedback from casting of like, you were great, but you weren't the right ethnicity, it's like, okay, well, I can't do anything about that situation. That's completely out of my control. But I, I love what you shared because I go back to, even with that information though, like I still be, I watched the video again and I was like, oh, are they using that as an excuse? Did I suck? And 
it's very odd to me sometimes because I think our perception of our work as creatives can be so radically different from how the public or friends or family perceive us. A hundred percent. It's hard though, right? Because you have a filter on what you think you're creating in the world, but then people have a totally different interpretation. And so I think this goes to like, how do we as artists find an internal satisfaction with our own work independent of the opinion of others? Like that sounds like, and as I'm saying, as the words are coming out of my mouth to you, I struggle like hell with that. I think everybody does. Everyone who's an artist or not, even if you are a business person and you're putting together a proposal to show your boss, like you are invested in their opinion of your work. That's so normal. And that's okay. And I don't think it's bad to be invested in what other people think because you want to know, is this resonating? Especially with art, I feel like there are people who make art for art's sake. Good for that. That is not me. I feel like for me, I like to make art that interacts with society, that makes people think that is of the moment, not necessarily ripped from the headlines, but it is tapping into something in the collective unconscious. And if I'm just making something that is, forgive the term, but well, like self-indulgent, I was going to say masturbatory, you know, it's just kind of like, why am I doing something that's only for me when I could be creating something that's a gift? for others. So that's that's how I feel about it, especially when I'm making films. I like to make art that is drawing attention to social issues or is for a good cause. So if you can find a bigger meaning behind whatever it is that you're doing, then the one thing that you didn't get or the the one opportunity that doesn't work out, it's not going to matter as much because you've you're on a mission. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's way bigger than just you. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, at least I think through the years that Whitney and I have been doing social media, I recently have been taking a break. I put my uh, my Instagram and Facebook accounts on. I didn't delete them. I disabled them. I disabled the accounts recently. This was like 40 recently as in 48 hours ago. <laughs> and oh, good thing I didn't try to look you up and think that you might have blocked me. <laughs> I would have been like, oh, no. And you know what? Legit, though, I do wonder. And I actually just before we started, got a text from someone who's an acquaintance and said, oh, I I saw you're off Instagram. Are you okay? Is everything okay?" And I'm kind of dreading like that because I don't want people to think like, oh, he killed himself, which given my mental health history, some people might think that that's a little morbid. But here we are. This might get uncomfortable. You got to get honest, you know, and people who know me know that I'm suicidal. So I'm concerned that I might get more texts. That wasn't my intention. My intention of, of, you know, getting off of social media for a little bit was not to like concern people. You know what I mean? So anyway, the thing I was going to say about the self-indulgence, Katie, I'm glad you brought this up is I had a moment where I realized that I was getting drawn into that on social media way too much. And it's easy because if you look at, you know, the algorithms and and Whitney is way deeper into the research on social media than I am in many regards. But, you know, I started to notice, right, that (sighs) pictures of my face or human faces were getting so much more engagement than other things. And then it's this pressure of like, oh, well, if I want the engagement, then I need to post pictures of my face all of the time. It's like, but I don't want to post pictures of my face all the time. I want to post what I want to post. Ah, but if you post what you want to post, Jason, you're not going to get the numbers. But I want the numbers because I want to see. It's this very kind of cyclical, kind of crazy making relationship, which is why I took a step back. And so 
with your mental health, Katie, and the intersection of your mental health, your artistry, and having this mission of wanting to create art that has a deeper meaning, how does social media play into that for you? And is it more of a love relationship, a hate relationship? How would you characterize your relationship with social media? Oh, wow. That's a big can of worms, Jason. That's where we're going there. Because <laughs> you could have taken the words right out of my mouth. I agree with you. It sucks. Like if I post a photo of the most beautiful painting in the world, that will not get any engagement. I post a stupid selfie that I took in my car. All of a sudden, everyone wants to look at that, right? And it is a little bit crazy making. So I understand that completely. And how do you navigate that as an artist who you have this mission, this higher mission of yes. creating with an intention to unite people, to reach people, to speak to them. And yet we have algorithms and platforms that quite often do not allow us to easily promote the work that we're doing in the world because of the way that the algorithms are skewed. So I guess from a, not only a mental health perspective, but more so when you're sharing the films you've done, the things you're proud of artistically, the things you want to reach more people, how do you navigate that? Right. Because it's like you want to express authentically what you've created, but you want as many eyeballs on it as possible to get your work out there. And then it becomes this sort of negotiation of, oh, but do I change it and alter it to get the eyeballs or do I stay true to what I want to express? It's yeah, tough. Yeah. I'm being reminded of a time when I did a Seed and Spark fundraiser for my short film. And I remember that was a big hurdle for me because I had never done a crowdfunding campaign before and I felt very self-conscious and I knew that if I wanted to do it right, I was going to have to take it on as if it was a full-time job and that I would have to post every single day for, I think, about two months straight. And so I psyched myself out and I thought about, you know, I pre-planned some posts, but then I left some days open to just have vulnerable, interesting content that was relevant in the moment, you know, and I consulted with people and I would really highly recommend also Seed and Spark. They're not paying me to say this, but they're incredible for crowdfunding for filmmakers because they actually assign you a crowdfunding specialist who you can talk to and ask personalized questions and will answer you. So that was really cool because I had someone who was kind of holding my hand through that process and Everyone I spoke to told me that the main thing in getting people to engage with these posts and to take action, which in this case was to get them to donate, was authenticity. So whatever it is that you're bringing to the table, as long as it's something that really matters to you and you could talk to someone about that for six hours straight, that's the key because people can sniff it out when you are not being authentic and you are just saying what you think people want to hear, or you're just posting something to post something kind of filler, people can smell it. They don't care. They don't want it. But when you post something that is real and it's from your heart and you speak from your heart, that's when you can get people to respond. And I would say the two films that I've directed, both were very like intertwined with social media, either in their creation or in this case, in the funding of it. And I have to say it kind of informed the filmmaking process as well because I could hear what the audience wanted and what they cared about. And that was really positive and interesting for me as well. For my short film, which is called We'll Never Make It, that you, you can see it on Amazon. I'll give you guys just a quick little 
elevator pitch so people know what it's about. It's about a young woman who gets stuck on the side of the road with her crazy Jewish grandma and her autistic brother. And it is heavily autobiographical. We shot it mostly in Joshua Tree, partially in LA. But back to my point about using social media before I even filmed this movie is that it forced me to be really solid with my ideas because if you don't know what you're talking about, you can't explain it to other people. You can't get them excited about it. So that was one. And then the other thing was because this was such a personal story for me, I was able to talk about my brother and my experiences growing up with him. I was able to talk about the lack of representation for people with disabilities in film because we found it to be very important to cast a person on the spectrum to play my brother. And so we talked about that. There were just a lot of really interesting issues that came up that I was able to latch on to and bring to the forefront. Because like I said, I like to make art that has some sort of social action in it, you know? So yeah, I think it's, it's a love-hate relationship. But I found that if I'm on a specific mission and it's not just look at me, it really helps a lot because otherwise it does. It feels very narcissistic and and completely pointless. I'm curious about your process with that. A, how do you define authenticity? Which is a question somebody asked me recently and and I sometimes struggle to (laughs) define it because it has become a trendy word. And for those of us on social media for years, we've been encouraged to be authentic and sometimes you can lose sight of what that means. So that's my the first part of my question. How do you define authenticity? When you were saying that, I took the liberty of Googling it because I was like, what is the actual definition before I make up my own? And it is defined as not false or copied, genuine, real, or representing one's true nature or beliefs, true to oneself. So I feel like that's, I mean, that I agree with all of that as it relates to like presenting ourselves in social media. Yeah, we do get these buzzwords and it sucks because authenticity is a good word, but it's being sullied by people who are using it, who are being fake or even gratitude. People love to use that word, especially in the self-help space. We should be grateful and gratitude and we're doing our gratitude journals. And it kind of is like, oh, so tired of hearing that word. As far as authenticity I would say it is something that moves me and something that actually matters to me, even if like, it's not about outside influences. It's not about me trying to please other people or say what they want to hear. It's about something that really speaks to my heart. And to dig in a little bit further to what Jason brought up earlier is going back to this question of how do you stay authentic and how do you stay in that internal place when so much of the work that you do is external. And I saw in one of your posts that you identify as an extrovert. I'm an introvert. (laughs) Jason's an extrovert as well, or at least that's what we think we are. At least we had done a few episodes on how even those terms may not really, or we might not really be what we think those terms are or something like that. And I just wonder being, again, like so front facing and so extroverted in a time with social media, in a time where you've chosen a career as a performer and as maybe a lifelong extrovert, how do you figure out how to stay authentic to yourself? What is a process? And 
I'm especially curious about this because I have a tendency as a people pleaser or someone that's trying not to be a people pleaser anymore. I have a tendency to shape shift a lot and be a bit of a chameleon. And even, you know, when you're bringing up the definition before you shared your own definition, you brought up the dictionary definition and then shared your definition afterwards. That's exactly what I would do. And I actually find that to be harmful for me. And I'm curious if if you do, because I've spent so much of my life first starting, like I'll ask, well, what do you think before I share what I think? And I thought of that as like a selfless act and a collaborative thing. But I've recently reflected on that and how maybe that's not serving me. Maybe that's taking away from my ability to be authentic, because if I'm so focused on what other people think first, if I'm focused on how things are already done and then modifying afterwards, I start to wonder, is it actually mine or is it just a, a modified version of what somebody else said or did? Yeah. You know, there's a metaphor that just came into my brain when you're talking about when you're hanging out with someone and instead of sharing your feelings, you ask them to share first is like there is a body of water. You don't know what temperature it is. And you ask the other person to jump in first. That's what it feels like because, you you know, you're sharing first. That's you being vulnerable. You're taking a risk. You don't know how they're going to respond. You're not quite sure what you're going to say. We're all improvising through life. You don't know how it's going to come out. And that's scary. But if the person says their piece first, then it's like you said, it's easier because you could just say, oh, okay, this is the, the category of things we're talking about, or this is the level of vulnerability that I'm going to match. So I think it's, it's a safe, it's playing it safe. And so what is your process to avoid playing it safe? Or do you prefer to play it safe? Is Because being safe can still be part of your authentic process. And that's another thing that I've been working on recently. And the show has really supported me in this process of being very open-minded and not judgmental and not judging somebody else's process. And if they believe that authenticity is one thing and it's different from my version of authenticity, that's okay because we're very different human beings. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how do you decide what to post on social media, for example, going back to like Jason's question and since it's, you know, or even your podcast, I suppose, like any of of those processes that you go through to decide, like, is this really me? And am I doing this for myself first and others second? Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said also is that what, what's authentic for you might not be authentic for me. And that's fine. That is actually, I think, expanding upon the definition of what's authentic is that it's unique to you. Like no one else is going to feel that way. And The extrovert introvert thing is really interesting because I was thinking about the different ways that I recharge and that I tap back into my inner world and figure out what's true for me, what's on my heart, what am I wanting to express? And there are, I either go go in or I go out. So if I'm going out, then that means I'm going to call an old friend or my grandma or somebody who really knows me well. And, you know, either spend time with them in person or over the phone. And I feel like that helps to remind me who I am. And as far as going inward, I'm a huge fan of journaling. I think that that helps me to just kind of receive messages from myself. (laughs) I journal almost every day. And also meditation, I find, helps me to get messages from the universe and from 
the the big picture because I'm quieting myself down, you know. And I'm trying to think what else. Oh, I'm a huge fan of baths. Love to take a bath, especially if I've had like just a tough, busy day. There is nothing better than getting in there. I've got my little LED light under the water. So I feel like I'm sitting in a jukebox and I've got my music. I got a little glass of wine and that's that, you know? I don't have to worry about anything. And also I feel like I'm uh, being cradled by a big, warm, warm blanket. So those are some ideas for ways that people can get back to their authentic self. I think also if if it's an artistic thing, of course, just any sort of artistic expression is a way to figure that out. Actually recommend if you are doing art in a professional manner, find something artistic that you're bad at and let yourself be bad at it. So I don't know, for example, I'm not really great at drawing. So maybe I would go get some canvas and some paints and just try to paint a portrait of my dog. And I'd let myself have fun with it because I'm not invested in it. I'm not trying to make a profit off of it. I'm just expressing myself just for fun. And that kind of brings you back to your inner child, I think. Yeah. This echoes something I saw yesterday, Katie, the the idea of creating just for creation's sake. There was a clip I saw yesterday from Ethan Hawke, who was talking about the importance of creativity for society and art as a lens for the human, the collective human experience. And in part of the video, he echoed what you said, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he he was alluding to the fact that as we get older, we become very serious artists. I'm I'm a serious actor. I'm a serious comedian, which is an oxymoron, I suppose. But talking about as we go on, we want to be serious artists because we want the acknowledgement. We want the money. We want the success. We want to be celebrated. But as children, he was talking about when he fell in love with acting at age 12, None of that was in his mind. He just, he did his first play and he was in love. He said he was just overcome by this deep connection to his creativity that up until age 12, he had never experienced. And he just wanted to act to express this thing that wanted to come through him, not all these other externalized reasons. And so in some ways, right, I think it's, It's like, okay, if I want to do this professionally and make a living as an artist, I suppose there is a level of, I don't know if seriousness is, there's a different word for it, focus perhaps or intention, but at the same time, not losing that freewheeling, just free-spirited sense of play as a child when there were no expectations, we weren't putting all of these requirements of like, I've got to have this make me money. I mean, that's something I still struggle with, especially with my music is like, how do I just create and allow the thing to flow through without forcing it to be something so that it can make me money and give me these things? It's a balancing act, I find. It's like, how do I keep the childlike desire to do it alive, but also as an adult, need to pay bills and keep a roof over my head? I mean, this to me, this is a very difficult thing I struggle with every fucking day. Yeah, yeah. That is, I think, the eternal struggle of artists and performers especially, I think you need to have a regular thing that you are doing that reminds you why you love it. So for me, in the before times and perhaps sometimes soon, uh, very involved in the LA comedy and LA theater scene. And 
when I'm doing those shows, I'm not really doing it hoping there's an agent in the audience or anything. I'm doing it so that I can go flex my acting and comedy muscles and go interact with other artists and come up with fun ideas and have the experience of being in front of a live audience and getting the laugh. And so then that way, when I go into an audition or whatever, it's like, I'm already doing my art all the time. I don't need this. Do I want it? Yes, of course. We all want money. We all want these gigs. But my need to express myself has already been fulfilled. And I'm not going around thinking, oh, I have to beg someone for the opportunity to do my art. I give myself permission to do that in my normal life on a different level that's not immediately linked to a job or money. A reporter asked Andy Warhol once, they said, how do you know when you're a successful artist? And Andy Warhol said, when the check clears. And that's always... (laughs) Basically, yes. (laughs) But this is interesting though, right? Because that's coming from someone who obviously is one of the most celebrated artists of human history. What's your definition of success? How do you define success for you, Katie? Oh, boy. That is a loaded question. Because success, I would say, you got to have work that you're proud of that's out there. And that if I died tomorrow, that I would feel like I left behind something meaningful. And that doesn't really put any parameters on me being on a sitcom and making a million an episode or anything like that, because that's more of an external definition of success and influencing a few hundred people versus a few million people, you're still making a difference. So I think it's just kind of that. And also I would say being successful is not just focusing on your career because I think that's one small slice of the pie. You also can look at like spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially with your family, your friends, letting yourself have fun sometimes. Like being a well-rounded person I think is my definition of success versus someone who is just so married to their career that they're not even enjoying life. It's a beautiful definition. I want to jump back to the extrovert, introvert conversation because I've talked to a lot of friends and colleagues over the course of, you know, I suppose the lockdowns that we had in Los Angeles and other major cities when they were, you know, in their most intense form of lockdown, how a lot of artist friends and colleagues who identify as extroverts had some very serious emotional challenges being used to being on the road, touring with their bands doing stand-up gigs regularly. Over that lockdown period, what was that like for your emotional health, your mental state? And as an extrovert who's used to going out and doing live theater, doing comedy, engaging with you know the community here in LA, not having those available to you, how did that change your level of artistic expression? And how was that emotionally? How, how did you navigate all that? So... I would say lockdown was difficult for everyone for different reasons, but being an extrovert who performs regularly and having that rug just pulled out from under you, it's tough. I'm not going to pretend it's not tough. 
But at the same time, it was really beautiful to see the way that the comedy community came together online to put stuff together. So almost immediately within the first month of the lockdown, I was involved in a bunch of different online projects. I remember I, I got asked to do voiceover for a puppet show someone wrote. I got to be a part of a project where I wrote songs. I'm not even a musician, but it was just a lot of co comedians writing a, writing up songs. And actually, you can check it out. It's called the 50 States Project. And it, I don't know if you're familiar with I'm probably saying his name wrong, but Sufjan Stevens, Sufjan Stevens. So he had a project that he never finished where he was going to make an album for every single state. So my buddy, Joey Clift, decided that he would get together hundreds of comedians and crowdsource this project. And so now I think, yeah, he put out all the albums for all of the states. And I want to say... Yeah, like there's at least 200 different songs that are on SoundCloud. And it was just such a cool, weird thing to be a part of. So I wrote three songs about Hawaii that are just out there now. And that never would have happened if I wasn't, we weren't all locked inside of our houses with nothing to do. And my buddy Joey was just like, huh, I'm going to do something to, to keep myself busy. Let's do this, you know? And that unlocked all this other creativity for me. But after that initial period of everyone being excited about collaborating online ended, which I would say was around maybe last May or last June, I got more into writing. So I wrote a whole screenplay and really spent my time working on that. So I, I had me and a few other girls. We were in a writer's group. We would meet up three I think, yeah, every other week and we would read each other's scripts. And so having that accountability and interacting with other artists in that way, it was just super stimulating and it turned on a different part of my brain. So I just focused all my energy on that as well as the podcast, which was a new thing that I birthed during COVID. So I just kind of directed all my energy into other places because like you were saying in the beginning, I'm, I'm a Jill of all trades or I prefer the term renaissance woman, honestly, because Jill of all trades implies that I am the master of none, which is not true. Not going to pretend I'm good at everything, but there are, there are a few things I'm good at. So I think it's important to not put yourself in a box and say, oh, I only do this. Because if you say I'm only an actor, I only perform and that's it. What happens when your stage is gone? Then who are you? It's like, no, you're an artist. Find find another place to channel it. And it boxes you in in the sense that people don't realize that you do things outside of that, too, which has happened to both me and Jason. I mean, Jason in particular has been known as a chef for so long. And now that he's losing the desire to do that, it's tricky because, I mean, I found this. This happened um, in a small, less insignificant way. I mean, less significant way. When I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco for, I think it was a year, it took years once I moved back to LA for people to realize that I lived here again. I mean, for years and years and years, people kept saying like, oh, I didn't know you were back in LA. And I thought, wow, like they just got it embedded in their head that I moved, even though I was... I thought I was being very clear that I moved back to Los Angeles. Sometimes in people's heads, you, you, you tell them what you do. You're an actor, you're a chef, you're a social media person, whatever it is. 
that's just how they define you. And even though you might be consistently defining yourself in other ways, I think it's just part of the how the human brain works and it compartmentalizes or puts on the blinders. And, you know, Jason, this might be something that you want to chime in on just due to (laughs) what that's been like for you and that mistake you've made. And, And then, Katie, I'm curious if like that has that's been something that you've successfully avoided or if you've struggled with that as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jason, do you want to go first? And she, she called you out. So I feel like you need to answer now. (laughs) She did. She did. I feel like it's almost similar to me. It's a parallel to typecasting in the sense that you do something outstandingly well. We go back to what Katie said, how we're like, I'm good at a few things. I know what those things are really damn good at them, but it's almost like, I have found in my career that by being really good at one or two things and focusing so much and so many years and reinforcing this image on social media, reinforcing it on magazine covers, whatever the hell, then it's like, oh, actually, I want to branch out from this thing, or maybe I don't want to do that thing at all anymore. But then people are so fixated on you. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're the funny guy who makes tofu. Great. Cool. 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 Oh, yeah. Funny, funny tofu guy. Yay. Funny tofu guy. It's like, I don't want to make tofu anymore. And I don't necessarily want to be funny all the time. But you think I'm the funny, maybe somebody calls me the funny tofu guy. So I don't know. But my point is, it feels like typecasting where you do something so well that everyone just knows you by that thing, which, again, can result in some success while you're doing it. But if you want to break out of that box, people are like, oh, you're you're making scarves out of scarves out of cat hair. Oh, you're the cat scarf weaver. We don't like that. We want you to be the chef. I'm like, I don't want to be the fucking chef. I want to make scarves out of cat hair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say I'm very disappointed. I did think I was coming onto the Funny Tofu podcast. I don't know. Maybe there was some confusion there. Sorry, Katie. Sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah. So for me, getting boxed in by others, it does happen. It does happen a lot, especially I think every industry, but in the entertainment industry specifically, I've had the issue of I worked as a freelance film editor for several years, and that's been a day job of mine. And it's tough because if people meet me in that context, then convincing them that I'm an actor is very difficult. Also, vice versa, if people meet me as an actor and a comedian and then or they just meet me out in the world and they see my face and, you know, I mean, not to brag, but no one's ever told me I have a face for radio. I don't fit the profile of what people think a video editor should look like. Right. Like it's some pale dude with a neck beard who's like never been outside and is just like in a hoodie. Like that's what people think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what people think of when they think of a video editor. And I am very outgoing and I'm a girl and all these different like I don't look the way they think I should look. And so I think that that was difficult because I ran up against a lot of situations where. I felt like when I was in my role as a video editor, like I said, it was hard. not only was it hard for them to see me as an actor or as a different person, but also because I didn't fit the mold of what they thought I should look like, I was treated differently. My opinions weren't heard the same way. So that's really tough. And I think on the acting side, I think I've never had any uh, 
the only people who have had a, a hard time seeing me as an actor are people who meet me as an editor first because they think, oh, she's they have a very clear delineation of behind the scenes versus in front of the camera. And it's very confusing for people to understand that someone might want to do both. And I'm glad that you brought up the Jill of all trades point, because there is this cultural idea that if you do it all, you're never going to be good at any of it. And I think part of your example is that you can be good at multiple things. You can be a multi-passionate person. And I think that's starting to shift a little bit. I noticed this a lot when I was first studying business and entrepreneurship. It was so much about like kind of staying in your lane and carving out a niche for yourself and like having one specific audience and avatar. And then I've noticed in the past few years, it's seems to have broadened out and allowing people to have multiple audiences, multiple passions, different career paths, and it's becoming a little bit more culturally acceptable. I hope that's true and not just my perception of it. (laughs) And I, I think it's important to remind people of it because there are still plenty of people who are afraid of that. They're afraid to either admit or they're afraid to open up and say, I do multiple things. I mean, I've been that way for a while and I still feel a little shame when I write on my business card or my email signature or whatever, like multiple titles. Cause I have, I mean, in my bio, I have, th- I think three things like Whitney Lauritsen is blank, blank and blank. And I feel like, ah, oh, are people going to think that I'm not good at any one of those things? But then I remember that it doesn't really matter because if somebody's going to hire me because they want me to be one thing all the time, that's probably not someone that I want to work with. <laughs> I yes. think the people that I work with tend to appreciate that I'm good at a number of things because the just like what you're describing, like that brings something to all the roles. You're experience in video editing is so huge. I mean, editing in general, when you're podcasting, you're thinking like an editor. When you're acting, you're thinking like an editor, which makes the editor's job a lot easier, even if you're not the one doing it. And as an editor who understands acting, you can edit in a way that an editor that doesn't know what it's like to perform can't. And so it's a beautiful thing to have experience and many years of practice in passion for something, in my opinion. Thank you. That was really kind of you. I agree with you. I think that learning more about multiple disciplines can only help you in the end. It's not going to hurt you. It's not like, oh, you've seen the other side and now you can never go back. And specifically with editing and acting, it is really interesting the way that they interplay with each other because it's not always bad. Like I've had a lot of times where I got hired to edit comedy stuff. Like I've edited for Smosh or Good Mythical Morning because they know I'm in comedy and they know that I understand this timing, right? So it's not always bad. And also on the acting side of it, you're right. It does help because when you're doing multiple takes, you know, to give something just a little different every time because you're giving options, right? Or you know to hold that extra beat or just these little things that you don't think about until you're in the editing booth and you're ready to just throw your computer out the window because this one actor keeps messing up whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. You know, so it's it's definitely helpful. And something else that I was thinking about, which Jason brought up earlier, is the pressure to 
be funny all the time or to have a certain mood all the time, even if it's not funny, maybe your, your audience expects you to be serious all the time and you don't want to be funny. That is really tough on social media. And I think was a huge reason why I started my podcast is because I had not been open about my mental health on social media at all. I had my social media was just kind of like funny and ambitious. Like people would talk about my career stuff, but I didn't talk about my anxiety or vulnerabilities as much. And it was something that really scared me. And so that journey of deciding to not only be open with it, but also start a podcast, like that really helped to me to get over like having to appear one way, one mood all the time that I just show up. However, I'm going to show up and people are going to accept me. And also it helps it helps other people because I was so scared to start talking about my anxiety in social media. And I found that once I put that out there and started talking about my panic attacks and going to therapy, I had so many people that were responding and saying, oh my gosh, me too. Or, hey, you inspired me to go to therapy or would just come to me for advice or for a listening ear. And that's such a gift is that like, by holding that back, I was holding myself back from all these beautiful people and this beautiful community that I'm building. So I was only doing myself a disservice by trying to appear one way because that's what I thought people liked. No, like human to be human, to be in the human experience is to have a million different emotions all at once all the time. <laughs> or at least it is for me. I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess I must be human too because I am a snow globe of emotions all of the time. Just shake it and who knows what emotions are going to come out of Jason. But that is how I found you, Katie. You know, when when we started this this podcast, I was we were both Whitney and myself very hungry to discover what other creators were out there talking about mental health. So I actually did a Google search and that's how I found you and followed you on Instagram, followed you on Facebook and got to know your work. So I'm so glad that you started not only talking about it publicly, but of course, starting crying behind sunglasses. One thing too, because you, you mentioned this when you were talking about your short film, and I wanted to bring this back and acknowledge your, your openness talking about your family experience too. You mentioned your brother who is on the spectrum. We, Whitney and myself, are, are often talking about mental health here on the podcast, so we can understand things like neurotypical versus neurodivergent the acceptance versus the judgment or the misrepresentation versus the representation. You mentioned you cast someone who was on the spectrum to play the role of your brother. So I'm really curious, A, you know, the importance of you doing that and making sure that people are represented in Hollywood, in entertainment. And B, if you could tell us more about the relationship with your brother and how that has inspired your activism through your art. We really just want to learn more about it. And if you're open to sharing how that's affected, you know, your relationship with him has affected your art. We'd love to hear more about that. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm going to go backwards and answer your second question first, if that's okay. Because I think I can't talk about the importance of representation without talking about the reason behind it for me. And like what even inspired me to write this film. So my relationship with my brother, Chad, we're very close. We're only 18 months apart. He's older. And he was diagnosed when I was six months old and he was two, which was rare. 
you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, like people were not getting diagnosed that young, but my mom was super proactive. And so growing up, it was tough. He didn't talk until he was four years old and he was kind of just like throwing tantrums and breaking VCRs and (laughs) you name it. Everything was going on until he was about 10. Now he's a dreamboat, which is great, but it, you know, it took a while. And because he's my only like actual flesh and blood sibling, I do have a few stepsisters. It really informed my experience of just being in the world for better or for worse. And I just learned so much from him. I think that I wouldn't be the same person today at all. I have so much more. I have empathy and compassion. And he and I just really have this special connection. Kind of like when people talk about twins having a weird connection, I feel like we had that because, like I said, he didn't talk until he was four years old. I started talking when I was nine months old, which is very young, I think. And that's because I feel like I've wanted to talk for him and I could tell what he wanted, what he needed for the most part. And I was pretty accurate with that and able to help him navigate the world. And as far as getting people like him to have representation, not just in movies, but in the world, that again, goes back to my childhood. Every time we'd go out to a restaurant or sometimes there'd be kids from my school or on the playground or whatever, People look at you funny. They make judgments. You know, they say mean things, especially kids. Kids are very mean. And I found myself in the role of a protector and an advocate all the time, constantly. I felt very protective over him and like I wanted to defend him and that I knew because I was given 100% like more social abilities and more abilities to navigate our society than he was that I wanted to put that to good use and really be there for him, which brings me like back to the film because I think people will ask, like you asked me before, why would you choose this crazy profession? (laughs) And I would say my brother really inspired me because he is so smart. He memorizes all of the perpetual calendars. He can tell you, you give him any date in the past or the future, he can tell you what day of the week it is. So for example, like I was born on a Monday, right? But he, like, if he met you, Jason, he would say, hi, Jason, I'm Chad. What's your, what's your birthday? And he would want, he would want to know the full thing, the year or two. And then immediately he would do a little calculation in his head and tell you what day of the week that you're born. So he's really into that. He's into maps. He memorizes the new roadmap to California, the Thomas Guide, every year. So he knows all of the roads in California. (laughs) Yeah. And this is what he does for fun. He's just smart. Someone like him, he could be cracking codes at the CIA, right? Like he would be really good. But the problem is because of the societal stigma for people who are like him, not to sell him short, but I don't think he'd ever even be considered for a job like that, right? And so... Because of that, I felt like I don't have those limitations. I don't have that stigma around me. I should pursue whatever it is that I'm really passionate about at 100% because I can't, you know, and because uh, there's nothing holding me back. And the other thing that I realized once I got older was that my ideas of what he's capable of and the kind of crazy, glamorous career he should have in my mind, like he doesn't care about any of that. He's the happiest person I know. He's perfectly fulfilled with his like 
normal job that he works at. He gets rotated to a few different job sites. He's worked at Costco. He's worked at the library. He worked at a senior center serving food. And he's just happy to like have a job, be a part of the community, have his house and his family and everything. He's fine. You know, he doesn't have these pressures and expectations on himself to have this impressive career. He's just happy to be himself, which is really beautiful as well. So that was a really long tangent. But as far as representation in film, I just am so tired of all of the representations I've seen of people with autism. And I feel like they are so inaccurate most of the time. Everyone just thinks about the Big Bang Theory or they think about what's eating Gilbert Grape. And it's great that they are telling the stories at all. I'm not going to act like that's not a good thing. However, it can often become a caricature and it's really upsetting. And also, like, I feel like people who are on the spectrum are just people. So if they're in a story, the entire story doesn't need to just be about that and be about some sort of tragedy of their life because they are a person with autism, right? Like, it, that's what I did in my film on purpose. The film is not about autism. It's about a road trip with a family. It's kind of like Little Miss Sunshine. But he just so happens to have autism and like it is a thing. Oh, okay. She has red hair. She has blonde hair. He has this. That's how I want people to think about it. I want it to be more normalized. And that that's my definition of re- representation is that it's just it's just part of the fabric of diversity. I love that. And that's such a great point because you listed two classic movies and it's hard to think of many beyond that, which is a, a bit frightening because I think a lot of us shape our awareness on media. And that's why, it, every, you know, whatever we're posting online as social, you know, social media creators, we have an opportunity to contribute that. And similar to you talking about mental health and how freeing that's been. I think it's so important for us to discuss these things and better understand them and talk about the things that we don't understand. And I'm so grateful to have a place where we can do that, you know, but I encourage anyone listening to raise your awareness and go outside of your comfort zone as, as we often encourage on this show, because to your point earlier, Katie, there's people out there that are yearning for it but we haven't created enough acceptance and normalcy around it. So they might not even realize how important it is to them. I watched that show Love on the Spectrum on, I think it was Netflix. Oh my God, I love that show. Sorry, I should interrupt you because it's so good. <laughs> I'd love to hear what your thoughts on it because I think, you know, we, I don't think we ever brought that up on the podcast. So, and it just sounds like Jason doesn't even know what we're talking about. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, Katie. Why do you love that show? I love that show. Uh, well, okay. First off, the reason I'm primed to love that show is that it's like a Venn diagram of two things I'm very into is that I love The Bachelor. I love dating shows, okay? And then, obviously, growing up with my brother, I have a, just a, a huge piece of my heart that anytime I watch anyone on the spectrum or with a developmental disability doing anything, I just am like, oh, I have to see it, you know? So, yeah, the, the show is incredible. What I love about it was that it's a dating show, but 
because everyone who is on this dating show is on the spectrum. They acknowledge the cameras all the time. They acknowledge how awkward everything is. They are themselves. They don't have a filter and it's not rehearsed. There are no real housewife taglines. No one's got like the crazy uh, plastic surgery or anything. Everyone's just there. And a lot of them have never even been on a date before, which is really interesting. Like I think at least one guy on the show had a dating coach. It's just very sweet. And also what I realized, because I didn't even think about this, was that a lot of them were so much more considerate on their dates than than neurotypical people would be. They were asking so many questions about each other's hobbies and interests and what TV shows they like. And I can't remember the last time I went on a date and someone said, what are your hobbies? And I felt like they were so <laughs> honest, too, like when they weren't interested in each other. <laughs> That's what I remember, at least, of them just being like, oh, I'm not I'm not into you. You're not a good match. And that was just that that. You know, yeah, and no that one took it personally. Yeah. It was just like, oh, okay, great, cool. Well, then we could just be friends. And that, like, it's not that whole, they're very upfront. And I, I find that's one thing that I really like about interacting with, I hate to generalize because I'm not going to say everyone with a developmental disability is this way. They're not. But people who are like my brother, it's interesting because they'll just say how they feel. And that's it. You know, I remember, oh, this was funny. This just came into my brain. The, one of the funniest things that my brother said it was very embarrassing for me. I remember I had a boyfriend that I brought out to dinner to meet my family for the first time. And he said, and I, like, and I had gone through a breakup, but it was like a year before that, you know? So he said, well, I guess John's out and he's in. <laughs> To the whole table and everyone just burst out laughing because he said the elephant in the room, right? Oh, okay. I guess she replaced the other boyfriend with this guy. But like, it was just so like, no, no neurotypical person would ever just like come out and say that with zero irony. And that's to me so refreshing, but also perhaps why it feels uncomfortable to talk about this because it's almost like I feel like we sweep people with disabilities under the rug and I'm I'm starting to feel or hide them like in a corner, you know. And as I kind of awoke to how racist this country is, I also started to notice all the different ways that we discriminate against people. And ableism is just a huge issue that like does not get talked about, in my opinion, often enough. I didn't even really know that term until probably the past year. And I didn't even recognize like how much privilege there is just to be neurotypical, able-bodied, you know, young, all of these things that we just put so much judgment on and and we have sh all the shame around people that are different body shapes, different ages, different body developments, and on and on, it, just to be different. But then if you look at the statistics, there's a lot of people that fall into an untypical way of being. And I've noticed this, actually, the term neurotypical, which, I again, that I only heard about a few months ago, that's actually started to come up a lot on TikTok and especially around ADHD, it's it's talked about so much. And the amount of information I've learned about that, which 
growing up, ADHD was like something that a few kids in my school had and they had to go on medication. And like, it was like kind of weird or something because it wasn't normalized. But now it's becoming more and more normalized, I think, at least with the younger generations. And it's so empowering because I bet you more people are are on some part of the spectrum than maybe they even realize themselves because perhaps their parents had shame around it. Unlike yours, maybe they were afraid to have their children diagnosed. Maybe they were afraid to admit that their children were on the spectrum or neurodivergent. And it's like such a shame because those people are either struggling and not even knowing why. This is part of my passion with ADHD, like the amount of people that don't even get diagnosed to their adults or never get diagnosed, but are struggling with this their entire lives and thinking that there's something wrong with them and carrying around the shame when maybe or a mental disorder. I mean, this is the whole thing. Yeah, no, I think it applies to a lot of different things. You could be saying the same thing about depression, anxiety, autism, ADHD, OCD, Basically, anything that's like your brain is not functioning the same way a just quote unquote neurotypical, normally wired brain would function. If you don't know why you're different and you don't know the tools to help you navigate society, it's really frustrating. And I've met a lot of adults who were either never diagnosed. And so they just kind of self-diagnosed as adults or did get a real diagnosis as an adult or like their parents knew and didn't tell them. I've heard that before too. There are a lot of different ways people come to figure out who they are, but I've noticed that it is more damaging to not know. And it is better, in my opinion, to at least understand why your brain operates the way that it does. So then you can decide what to do about it and you can understand what's going on. And especially for people with autism, it's so hard with all the social stuff in school and they f- feel like they're an, they're outsiders, you know, and misunderstood and they don't understand what's going on and why everyone else understands the social hierarchy and understands these social norms and knows how to play this whole game. And it's like everyone else got this rule book that they didn't get. And if we know why, like if you, instead of feeling like you're totally left out, you're just like, oh, okay, I'm on the spectrum. I'm different. So I'm going to have to actually go to therapy or whatever it is that I need to do to figure out how to interact with other people. I'm going to do it. But if you don't know why you're different and you just feel like, oh, I must be cursed, that's a terrible place to be. That being said, Katie, you were talking about, you know, self-diagnosis versus uh, seeing a clinician and actually, I suppose, having a condition verified. With your particular mental health challenges, with your history, how did you come, how do you even say this? How did you come to fully grasp what was going on with you? Was it, okay... I'm having panic attacks. I'm having, you know, uh, consistent anxiety. Uh, I'm having depression. Did you go to see someone who who clinically diagnosed you with those things? And beyond that, what is your protocol for handling your mental health challenges? Are you doing it, I suppose, for lack of a better term, more holistically? Do you take pharmaceuticals? Is it a combination of those things? Like, what's your personal care regimen? Yeah, 
I think what you wanted to ask me, Jason, is like, Katie, like, how did you find out exactly how fucked up you were? And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, happy to share, super fucked up, but it's great because we're in good company, right? (laughs) And I would say growing up, I was always very, a very high strung, stressed out kid, but it was normalized in my household because both of my parents were always super stressed out with their jobs. And so I didn't think there was anything quote unquote wrong with me. Also, because my brother was referred to as disabled, I was referred to as the normal kid, you know, because I wasn't on the spectrum. I'm fine. I'm normal. Katie's fine. You know, that was kind of like the feeling in the house growing up. And then it wasn't until I was able to go away to college, move to New York when I was 18 and kind of separate myself from my family that I was able to see, oh, okay, these are some patterns that are really impacting my life in a negative way. And I think there were also just a lot of tough experiences that I went through in college, like my biological dad passed away when I was a freshman and then also like going through my first big breakup, things like that just kind of sent me into a whole downward spiral to the point where uh, my last year of college, I'm looking at down the barrel of a gun almost like, oh my God, I'm going to be graduating. I don't know what's going to happen. And I remember that was like a breaking point for me where I started having panic attacks, but I didn't know what they were. I literally thought I was dying to the point where I called an ambulance, went to the hospital. I thought I was having a heart attack because that's what it felt like. The room was spinning. My heart is racing. I can't breathe. So when I went to the hospital, they told me that I was fine and that I had just had a panic attack. And so that was kind of the beginning of a very long journey of learning about my mental health and taking care of myself that is still ongoing and will probably keep going forever. I guess the journey of trying to help start with my mental health started slightly sooner than that. When I remember, because when um, my dad died, I did go see a counselor at the university to talk things out and share my poetry and process things. But yeah, I remember after I graduated college, it was, it was tough. I was on meds for a while. I was on a crazy cocktail that made me feel like a zombie. I think it was uh, Lexapro, Ativan and Ambien. And I had never taken anything. And all of a sudden, I'm just taking all this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, I don't feel sad or anxious anymore. But I also don't feel anything. So that was for a while. And then once I had been back in LA for a few months, I decided I wanted to step off of that stuff and try and deal things on my own. And so I did. And as far as therapy goes, after that first initial few months, I generally, I take the car into the shop when it's making noise. So I'll go to therapy when I feel like I need it. And then I'll go for anywhere from a month to like six months. And then I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go back out into the world and remember that I can cope by myself again. Because I think that's a danger with therapy that not a lot of people talk about, which is that like, you have to be okay enough that if your therapist cancels on you in the last minute, you're not going to fall apart. And you need to be okay enough that when something happens to you, your first thought isn't just, oh, I should wait to therapy to process this, or I should let them tell me what to think. Your first thought should be, okay, what are my coping skills? How am I going to self-soothe here? Because I think therapy is to give you tools to be able to take care of yourself. It's not 
the job of the therapist is not to sit there and fix you. It's for you to learn how you can fix yourself. And of course, like they went to school and they're educated and they know more than than I do about psychology and everything. So they're going to be able to guide me on that journey. But it's really ultimately driven by the person. And that's why you can't like I've had so many friends with like, oh, I wish that my boyfriend would go to therapy. And it's like, no, you can't push someone else to go to therapy. They have to want to go. And even if they do go, if someone's been pushed it's not going to work out because they're not going to say they're not going to want to change and they're probably not going to share very much with the therapist. It has to be a very self-driven experience. So as far as my diagnoses, I guess officially generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And I, it's not like something I deal with every single day. It comes and goes in waves. Of course, coronavirus was difficult because I felt like I didn't have a lot of my normal outlets that I would have to help me with that. But I also found at the same time, I had more time to work on myself and do the internal work and journaling and being in touch with my feelings. So it was kind of a little bit of calm A and a little bit of calm B. But as far as how I deal with my mental health, it's a lot of the same things that I we were talking about earlier when we were talking about how I deal with rejection or how I deal with being in a tough industry. It's the same same stuff, you know, just meditating, making sure I get enough sleep, really getting all of my needs met, playing with my dog, writing my journal, and surrounding myself with, with positive people. That's most of it. And as far as pharmaceuticals, I, I guess it's kind of similar to my approach with therapy where I don't really love taking something every day. I just don't like the way that I feel on that. So... I will sometimes take something as needed for my anxiety if I feel like it's kind of like the big red button, you know, like I've, I've tried all my other things. I, (laughs) I'm spiraling out of control. And at this point, I know this is all just a bunch of chemicals and I'm kind of powerless over it. Okay. I'm going to have an Ativan or a Valium or something in that family of drugs, but I don't think there's any shame around it. And I hate that, that people have stigma around taking medication or referring to medication as being like, I don't know, like unnatural, you know, because some people have a chemical imbalance in their brain and they need to take something every day, whether that's for depression or anxiety, or even my brother has epilepsy. He takes anti-epileptic drugs every day. And I'm really glad that there's not really a stigma around that. That's probably because there is a physical manifestation but epilepsy is the same. It's it's an imbalance in the brain. Things aren't wired the right way, but there is a stigma for whatever reason for taking uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. And I don't think that should be the case. I think the only real issue with anti-anxiety meds is that sometimes people take them recreationally, like people taking Xanax for fun. And I don't think that's a good idea, but if you need it, take it, you know, better living through chemistry. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Katie. And and as we are dancing, hopefully, like the Laverne and the Shirley's across the finish line. I don't know why Shamil Shamazel Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. Now that song's in my head. Shamil. Shamil. Shamazel. Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. <laughs> We're going to do song. it. Now it's going to be in my head the rest of the day. As we get close to wrapping, I just I wanted to thank you for sharing that point about not only, you know, your personal journey, but this this breaking of the stigma around pharmaceuticals, because I'm actually, for the first time, having a conversation with my therapist, literally after we wrap, 
I'm going right into a therapy session. And it's been seven years since my diagnosis with uh, clinical depression and suicidal ideation. And it's been really, really, really hard lately. And I'm finally going to broach the idea of experimenting with a pharmaceutical with my therapist. I've been trying to manage it naturally for seven years with um, varying degrees of success. So sort of on a final note, Katie, I'm just so glad you brought that up because I am battling my own internal judgments and my own internal stigma around pharmaceuticals because I've had this mantra of like, I'm going to do it the quote natural way. See, that's what I hate. You know? I hate that. I hate that messaging of like, mm-hmm. oh, it's natural, it's holistic, it's organic to not take something you need. Yep. I think, you know, it, it, I'm sorry to like <laughs> jump on you, but I just feel like we got to let that go. Yeah. Like you can eat organic and do yoga and also take an antidepressant. For sure. Those things can all coexist and it's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's really brave of you to share and- I'm hope that you're able to find the relief that you need. And from my perspective of ex- very various experiences with pharmaceuticals, I've had success, I've had failures. It's just, for me, I would say it just, it takes the edge off. It makes things easier. And it doesn't totally like fix the problem. You still got to do the work. Of course, you still have to do the work, but it brings you to a place where you have enough spoons that you can do the work, you know, because if if you're just feeling bad all, all the time and you don't have that little window of opportunity to actually take those steps to make yourself feel better, then like that's that's tough. So I think it's going to be really great for you. And the other thing I would also say, I know you're not asking for advice, but I'm throwing it out there in case other people want advice if they're thinking of starting meds, is that just because one of them doesn't work doesn't mean that all antidepressants are bad. And also it takes a while for your body to adjust. So just, you know, give it time and be gentle with yourself. And you can also Something else that someone advised me to do before, which is really smart, is to keep a little journal, not like a long entry, but every day, like, okay, I took this much and this is how I felt. And then like each day kind of tracking it. So then you can look back and when you talk to your doctor, you're like, oh, I had X amount of days where I felt good this month or I felt tired most of the time or I felt nauseous or whatever it is. And I feel like that really helps also because sometimes you can make up stuff in your head where you think you're doing really bad, but then you look back at the journal and you're like, actually, no, things are fine. So I don't know. Those are some, some hot tips for lack of a better word for, uh, if people are thinking about meds. Yeah, that's incredibly timely, Katie. And just overall, I want to thank you for, for being with us today and being you, you know, putting your heart into everything that you do, coming on here and, and sharing your story, your family history, the, these wonderful tips. It's just been a gold mine of really soulful wisdom. And for you, dear listener, if you want to dive into Katie's incredible artistry, we will link to all of her great work, her films, her acting, her incredible podcast, Crying Behind Sunglasses. Uh, We'll have all those in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. You can go to W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We will have everything you need to follow up with Katie, check out her incredible work, support her podcast, and give her the fuel to keep doing the good things that she's doing in the world. Because again, that's how I found you, Katie, 
was so grateful to be a guest and to have you here today was just an absolute joy. So thank you so much. And thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This has been really great. And I have to admit, when I listened to the podcast, I was a little intimidated to come on because I wasn't sure what I would be able to share. You both are just so knowledgeable and you both have so much wisdom about the world. So I'm really glad that I could, you know, just add to that and be a part of the conversation. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 